Now you talk about terror. Welcome to another podcast from the Chris Hedges Report. What about me? I'm Chris Hedges, and you can find more of my work at chrishedges.substack.com. High school history textbooks have a remarkable ability to leave out one of the most crucial moments in 20th century history, which took place during World War I and its aftermath. In popular American mythology, we leap from the war to the Roaring Twenties. This willful historical amnesia blots out one of the darkest periods in American history. The severe state repression of political dissidents and the press, labor, and black Americans. This state repression saw the widespread use of mass imprisonments, deportations, torture, vigilante violence, censorship, and, of course, the killings of black Americans, as well as the crushing of the labor movement. It was, as Adam Hochschild writes, quote, a story of how war supposedly fought to make the world safe for democracy became the excuse for a war against democracy at home. It is dangerous to erase memory, for it condemns us to repeat the sins of the past. The struggle of man against power is the struggle of memory against forgetting, Milan Kundera wrote. Joining me to discuss this crucial moment in American history, one that ominously reverberates today, is Adam Hochschild, author of American Midnight, The Great War, A Violent Peace, and Democracy's Forgotten Crisis. Uh, The book is great. All your books are great. It reminded me of your book, uh, To End All Wars, uh, because those figures that are a voice of sanity, not only in terms of war, but in terms of social progress, are defeated, um, quite tragic. I think you end that war with, with actually uh, imagining a graveyard where they would, all these wonderful figures uh, who stood up would end up, Keir Hardy and others. Um, but lay out the scene for us, because the United States had the bloodiest labor wars of any industrialized country. Um, hundreds of workers were killed, thousands were blacklisted, um, and, and they were making significant gains on the eve of World War I. Uh, and then we'll talk about uh, the subject of your book, which is Wilson and Palmer and what happened next. The myth was that the United States uh, was a country at peace that was drawn reluctantly into the First World War. But in fact, we were not a very peaceful country. We were riven by several huge conflicts, if we roll back the clock to the year 1917. One of them was between business and labor. Uh, there was a great deal of labor strife each year because business was hell-bent to stop any unionizing efforts. Uh, dozens of workers were killed in strikes every year. Just in 1913-1914 alone, for example, More than 70 people died at the hands of company detectives and National Guardsmen who were putting down a miners' strike in Colorado. So that was one conflict. Another conflict, also bloody at times, was between nativists and immigrants because, you know, this country has been built by successive waves of immigrants and always the people whose ancestors have been here for a couple of generations have resented the newcomers coming in. Uh, we see that today. Uh, a century ago, the 
people who were the brunt of this resentment were the waves of immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe, basically Jews, Poles, and Italians. And a third great conflict, which is still going on today, was that between white and black Americans. Uh, many white Southerners had never really accepted the fact that the South lost the Civil War. Uh, they maintained uh, white supremacy by a brutal regime of lynchings. Uh, there was often more than one lynching a week in the American South in this era. And millions of black people were fleeing the South in the Great Migration, which began around 1910. Coming to northern cities where often they found themselves very unwelcome. So these were three big conflicts that riled up this country at the time that we entered the First World War. And the war gave the excuse to ratchet up all of them. Because the worker who went on strike could now be accused of uh, impeding the war effort. Uh, the immigrant heard speaking a foreign language on a street corner might be a German spy. And then, of course, November of 1917 came the Russian Revolution, which meant a paranoia about all things revolutionary. So maybe that immigrant was also a Russian spy. So these are the way that these two events, entering the First World War and the Russian Revolution, ratcheted up the conflicts that were already tearing the United States apart in this era. With that, you had the rise of socialism, anarchism. Uh, many of these movements originated in Europe, especially with the Russian Revolution. There was a great deal of fear on the part of the business elites uh, that they could replicate what had happened in Russia. But you had a certain amount of success. You, you write uh, at one point there were 33 state legislators, 79 mayors, well over a 1,000 city council members and municipal officials uh, who uh, were socialists. Uh, Debs, uh, Eugene V. Debs, we can talk about him. I think what was the highest was 6%. Uh, he polled at a certain point running for president. Uh, and this was also perceived as a kind of mortal threat by the oligarchs. That's right. Uh, the Socialist Party was a considerable force in American life, those statistics that you mentioned. And also, let's not forget that Eugene Debs, its frequent candidate for president, had won uh, 6% of the popular vote in the 1912 election. So this was a big threat to, um, uh, you know, the, the status quo. And one of the things that happened during this period was that the government used the hysteria over the war and the hysteria uh, that the Russian Revolution might spread to the United States, something of which there was never the slightest possibility, I think. They used it to crush the Socialist Party. Uh, Debs was thrown in jail with a prison sentence of 10 years for speaking out against American entry into the First World War a position that millions of Americans felt that it was a mistake for us to enter this hugely destructive war, which was on its way to remaking the world for the worse in every conceivable way. That was obvious to lots of people then, as it's become more obvious as the time has passed. Uh, six U.S. senators and 50 members of the House of Representatives voted against the declaration of war, but it was mainly the socialists who were prosecuted for this because 
Woodrow Wilson's administration wanted to eliminate them as a political force. Not that American socialism was ever as powerful a force in this country as socialism was in many European countries, but I think had the party not been crushed in this period, it would have been a force that could have pushed the United States towards having the kind of national health care system and better social safety net uh, that Canada has, for example, and that most of Western Europe has compared to us. I want to talk about vigilante violence. This is uh, something you write a lot about in the book. Of course, we are now experiencing the rise of right-wing vigilante groups. Uh, you make the point that many uh, were veterans of the Philippine War, uh, just as uh, we see many veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan gravitating to the three percenters and uh, some of these other groups. But you uh, you say that these were these conflicts were essentially the training ground for these vigilantes, and they used many of the. Uh, most brutal practices that they had learned overseas, including waterboarding and torture here at home. Yeah, it's really an incredible thing that has an eerie resemblance to today. Because one thing that scholars of today's vigilantes have found, you know, in looking at groups like the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, uh, the folks who invaded the Capitol on January 6th of last year, uh, a number of them were veterans, veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan, just as the vigilantes who also flourished in the 1990s, a lot of them were veterans of Vietnam. So it's often overseas wars where, you know, American right-wingers learn, you know, techniques that they apply at home. And if we look at the U.S. of a century ago, the training ground for the vigilantes of that period, and we should come back to them and describe them because they were considerable, was the Philippine War. This very brutal conflict that lasted from 1899 to about 1902, but continued sporadically for some years after that, where the U.S. brutally suppressed uh, Filipinos who did not want to see those islands become an American colony. Hundreds of thousands of Filipinos were killed. Um, uh, U.S. troops, in order to extract information from guerrillas, uh, tortured, waterboarded, uh, captured guerrillas, and there are actually photographs of Filipino guerrillas uh, enduring this that you can find. And those techniques came back home. Uh, many of the uh, vigilante groups who became active in 1917, 1918, were Philippine war veterans. Uh, and these vigilantes were an enormous force in this country at that time. The largest single group was something called the American Protective League, which had a quarter of a million members, and it was officially chartered by the Justice Department. Uh, and they busied themselves. This was a group mainly made up of men who were a little too old to fight in the war, but still wanted to feel they were somehow or other defending their country. And they carried out massive raids in major American cities, often uh, using citizens' arrests to arrest tens of thousands of people uh, at a time, uh, whom they suspected of evading the draft. 
And these young men who couldn't produce their draft cars were held sometimes for several days at a time in warehouses and armories and so on until their families could find them and produce the right paperwork. A small percentage of them really were evading the draft and were shipped off to the army. Uh, the others were often roughed up, detained for several days, and then, then sent home. So this was a time of great vigilante activities, which sometimes became violent. And you can hear these vigilantes in accounts from the time describing very zestfully, uh, violently breaking up anti-war demonstrations, uh, violently breaking up strikes, because, of course, they always came in on the side of the strike breakers and the corporations. I just want to read a passage from the book. I just throw in that my grandfather was in the main National Guard in the 1930s, and uh, most of that activity was clubbing strikers, uh, or worse. Uh, you, you write, shadowed by the violence of the frontier, the United States had long fought a bloody war on workers trying to unionize. No other country, for instance, had anything comparable to Pennsylvania's coal and iron police, a force essentially dedicated to battling unions and breaking strikes. Rare was the militant labor leader who had not spent a term in jail. American workers who tried to form unions had virtually no laws protecting their rights to do so. Strikes or attempts to unionize had long been met with armed force on a scale that seems today inconceivable. By the time troops suppressed an 1877 railway strike, roughly 100 workers were dead and more than 1,000 jailed. In the 20 years starting in 1890, 75 strikes saw workers killed for a total of 308 deaths and thousands of injuries in 1913 and 1914. As you said, more than 70 people, including women and children, died in battles between Colorado miners and National Guardsmen defending a Rockefeller-owned coal mine. Um, these vigil, these paramilitary groups, gun thugs, deputized, I think they all were, had Secret Service badges as if they were legitimate law enforcement officials, they really became the shock troops to break any kind of union movement. They, they did. And I think we see a little bit the same thing happen now when we have groups like the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys out there. Uh, there's a special appeal that vigilantes have uh, to men wanting a fight, I think, and it is always men who join them. Uh, which is that it gives you uh, a chance for combat. It gives you a chance to have a rank, uh, just as you do in the military, but without the obligations, the hardships, and the risk of death that comes if you actually do join the military. Uh, so that applied then, and that, that still applies today. Let's talk about the Wobblies. They're a particular target. They're actually not a, a large segment of the union movement, but they really bear uh, much of the ferocity of these vigilantes in the state, including, of course, the execution of Joe Hill and others. Yeah, the Wobblies were the name that everybody used, its origins are obscure, for the members of the Industrial Workers of the World, the IWW, which was the country's most militant trade union. It never comprised more than about 5% of American union members. 
one could argue that it was not hugely effective as a union because they had a principled position against signing contracts with employers, which is not a very good recipe for uh, making gains. But it captured everybody's imagination, uh, even middle-class people who, who didn't belong, because they had the best posters, they had the best songs, uh, and they had a very open-arm embrace of all people, black and white, men and women. Several of the major wobbly organizers uh, were women, uh, immigrant and native-born. And this was a spirit that really did not exist in most other American labor unions. And so they were perceived by the government as a special threat. They had been very active in uh, certain strikes in key industries at the time the First World War began. For example, uh, in the Bisbee, Arizona, in the summer of 1917, Wobblies had organized a miners' strike, copper miners, in a complex of mines there. And the copper miners were angry because their, the war had set off a copper boom, raised the price of the metal greatly because it was used in bullets and all kinds of other things, but it had not been reflected in their wages. So several thousand miners were on strike. One day in the summer of 1917, a force of vigilantes, uh, you know, officially deputized as a sheriff's posse, uh, reinforced by a company detectives swept through Bisbee, uh, roused 2,000 striking miners from their beds uh, in the early morning hours, uh, demanded at gunpoint that they go back to work. When most of these men refused to go back to work, they were, again, at gunpoint, loaded onto a freight train full of freight cars, cattle cars, which were full of manure because cattle had just been in, in, in them, and trucked 180 miles through the desert, placed in an army stockade, and forbidden to come back to Bisbee. So this was the kind of rough justice that was meted out in this period. The Wobblies got it worse than anybody. Uh, a little bit later that year, the fall of 1917, the government raided all 44 offices of the Wobblies around the country, uh, trashed them, arrested people by the hundreds, uh, put several hundred Wobblies on trial. One group in Chicago, more than a 100, uh, went on trial. Uh, and that remains actually the largest civilian criminal trial in American history. And the jury deliberated for an hour and found all the people on trial who'd been reduced to about 99 at that point, uh, found them all guilty on all counts. The judge passed out uh, a total of 807 years of prison time. So this was a case where the U.S. government essentially decided to crush an organization, not by making it illegal, but by trashing its officers, arresting its key members, and sending them to jail for long periods of time. Let's talk about the press. Heavy censorship. They use uh, uh, the, the postmaster, uh, essentially shuts down all sorts of socialist journals, appeal to reason, the masses. And then at the same time, the establishment press uh, becomes a kind of mouthpiece through official leaks for uh, something that uh, is with us today uh, for the Wilson administration. You write the New York Times breathlessly reported learning, quote, from a source of undoubted authority 
that the IWW was planning, quote, the destruction of the wheat and corn crops by setting the great fields of the West ablaze, the wrecking of farming machinery by cleverly inserting rocks and metal scraps, and a multitude of crimes all intended to hamper the successful prosecution of the war. The paper assured readers that German spies had infiltrated the Wobblies of the IWW. So on the one hand, that press, uh, radical left press, uh, that would give a voice to workers and uh, those people struggling uh, to find a place in society is shut down. And then, of course, you have the amplification of, and you uh, spend a lot of time in the book uh, deconstructing this information to prove that it was false, uh, essentially amplifying this notion of fear and, and the demonization of groups like the IWW. Yeah, the information was false because uh, whatever criticism you can make of the Wobblies, no Wobbly was ever anywhere in the United States convicted of an act of industrial sabotage of any kind. But that didn't prevent the press from obediently trumpeting all these claims that the government was making. Meanwhile, the critical press was being closed down. The law under which all this happened was the Espionage Act, uh, an amended version of which is still in effect. Uh, and ironically, it's that law which may get Donald Trump in, in trouble for those classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. It's also the law they're using to lynch Julian Assange. That's right. And Edward Snowden as well. Um, the, uh, the Espionage Act, which was passed uh, some weeks after the U.S. entered the war in 1917, gave to the Postmaster General the power to declare any publication unmailable. It couldn't travel through the U.S. mails. And, of course, this didn't affect mainstream daily newspapers, which were sold on street corners and delivered to people's homes, but for weeklies, monthlies, journals of opinion, and the vast bulk of the country's foreign language press, they had no other way of reaching people than through the mail, because there was no internet, no radio, no TV. And the law put this power to declare something unmailable in the hands of the postmaster general, a guy named Albert Burleson, a former uh, uh, congressman from Texas, a uh, deeply reactionary man and arch segregationist. At the time of his birth, his family had owned uh, 20 slaves. His father and grandfather were Confederate veterans. And he loved being chief censor. And over the course of the next four years, he banned roughly 400 specific issues of American newspapers and magazines from the mail. And in the process, forced roughly 75 publications to cease publishing entirely. Uh, and he did this ostensibly. The Espionage Act was passed with the excuse that the U.S. needed to, you know, toughen things up against German spies and so on because the war was on. But this press censorship operation continued for two and a half years after the war ended. Uh, it was just an excuse to remove critical voices from the public sphere. Well, and the Espionage Act, which, as you said, is passed uh, as a wartime measure is almost from the start used exclusively for dissidents uh, from Emma Goldman to everyone else. And and I had realized that, but not until I read the book, I hadn't realized how widespread it was. 
Right. There were roughly 2,000 people uh, 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 prosecuted under the Espionage Act in the four years starting in 1917. Only 10 of them were actually accused of being German espionage agents. The others were people whose voices the government wanted to silence. And it was a powerful tool, the act, because it allowed the government to put people in prison. And when you add up the total toll taken by the Espionage Act and by copycat laws that were passed by most of the American states, when you add that all up, the grand total is that roughly a 1,000 Americans in this four-year period spent a year or more in prison and a far larger number, shorter periods of time, solely for things that they wrote or said. Uh, an appalling, uh, an appalling toll in a country that likes to think of itself as not having political prisoners. But in this period a hundred years ago, we certainly did have. Well, it had a kind of Stalinist quality to it. You know, if somebody wrapped fish in a newspaper and had a picture of Stalin off, they went to the gulags. But there was that, you have several examples. Maybe you can cite them. Again, just the absurdities, uh, for which people were incarcerated. There were, there were really crazy things because there was this hysteria in the air and people were wanting to have concrete expressions of it. And if you could put somebody in prison, that was proof that you were a patriot. Here's, here's one really bizarre example because it involves things said in private, not in public. Uh, there was a guy named Charles Schoberg, uh, who was a cobbler in Covington, Kentucky, small city just across the Ohio River from Cincinnati. He had a cobbler's shop, and one day as he was repairing shoes, a couple of guys came in and said, we need to fix your electric meter. And they came back one or two times in later weeks, always fussing with his electric meter, and then went away again. Uh, he didn't know it, but they were private detectives employed by a local vigilante group who were planting a microphone running wires through his floor and uh, into the basement of the building where more detectives listened in for several months. They overheard conversations between Schoberg and two friends who, during the spring of 1918, said things that this vigilante group judged too favorable to Germany. Now, if you look at the history of that time, the spring of 1918 was a time when uh, Germany uh, had a successful offensive in the First World War. They almost reached the gates of Paris, and it was a time when it was not surprising that three men chatting in a cobbler's shop, all of them past, well past draft age, should say uh, admiring things about the German generals who were making these, uh, making these big advances at the front. On July 4th, 1918, a day deliberately picked because of its significance, I think, they were all three arrested, charged with violating the Espionage Act, uh, sent to prison. Actually, the government didn't get around to sending them to prison because of appeals and so on until after the war ended. Uh, and they were shipped off to the federal penitentiary in, in Moundsburg, West Virginia, simply for a private conversation among themselves while Schilberg paused in his business of repairing shoes. 
utterly absurd. And there's case after case after case like this around the country in this era. I want to talk about two points. One, uh, uh, if you could address uh, the issue of um, uh, the uh, effects of this on on, ter- on terms of stoking the kind of paranoia that uh, rippled out uh, throughout the country uh, and how that resonates with today. And then the other point is, which I think you get from the book, is how vicious, ruthless, and violent the capitalist class will be when they perceive not just a threat, uh, but any attempt uh, to mitigate uh, social inequality. And now, of course, we are in a situation where uh, unions have largely been eviscerated. And I think it's a good lesson to remember the kind of tactics that uh, these elites will use when workers try and organize to demand a living wage or good working conditions. Well, this was a very violent era when anybody tried to organize a union. The employers were unscrupulous. They saw their profits at stake, and they did everything they could to crush the strikes. Uh, they called in the National Guard or the state militia repeatedly. Uh, several U.S. cities, Gary, Indiana, for, in- for example, were put under martial law during this period. Uh, because there was a steel strike in Gary, there was a, a vigilante group that was allied with the federal troops who were uh, putting the strike down, and they went out and uh, beat up strikers. Uh, the employers also always made use of ethnic and racial tensions in suppressing strikes. Uh, for example, one document that surfaced in, in this period uh, uh, where a labor group got hold of it was instructions that a steel company gave to private detectives regarding a strike in Chicago, where it said, do everything you can to stir up tension between the Serbs and the Italians. Uh, tell the Serbs that the Italians are taking all the good jobs and they're not going to walk off when the strike happens. Tell the Italians, you know, the same thing about the Serbs and so on. Um, this was making use of uh, tension between two ethnic groups, which was uh, all the stronger because at that point, Yugoslavia and Italy were actually uh, in a skirmish with each other in Europe. At the same time, they shamelessly made use of racial tensions by uh, making widespread use of black strike breakers. Black Americans fleeing the South were, of course, desperate for jobs. They often had a great deal of trouble getting good industrial jobs because many unions uh, kept out black people. Uh, and so the employers hired them as strike breakers, uh, you know, to, and brought them in. The steel strike in Gary, Indiana, for example, they brought in black strike breakers by ship, uh, or ships, traveling on ore ships across Lake Michigan. Uh, so they wouldn't have to pass through the picketers in, in front of the factory. So, you know, racial tensions were used to enforce uh, labor disputes by the company's side uh, in, in these disputes. It was an incredibly violent time. We see milder versions of all this today. Uh, I think the racial 
uh, tensions, which of course we still have in this country, are not used in the same way, but corporations are still being very shrewd and doing everything they can to defeat unionization attempts. Uh, those those uh, attempts that are going on right now, for instance, at Amazon warehouses and at Starbucks coffee shops and so forth. Uh, companies are making great use of union-busting consultants who are less violent and smoother talking uh, than a hundred years ago, but their aim is still to stop workers from organizing. Great. That was Adam Hochschild, author of American Midnight, The Great War, A Violent Peace and Democracy's Forgotten Crisis. I want to thank the Real News Network and its production team, Cameron Granadino, Adam Coley, and Kayla Rivera. You can find me at chrisedges.substack.com. Mm-hmm.